Welcome everyone to Pieces of a Woman podcast. Deanna and Christy here with you today. This week's episode is an inside look at domestic violence. This is a really hard topic, but so important to talk about. And Christy and I wanted to have this conversation when we first started putting the podcast together, knowing how important the conversation is. But we wanted to make sure we give it everything that is important regarding domestic violence and not just an interview of maybe um, people that work at Domestic Violence Coalition, but also bring in a story. Yeah, absolutely. And if you heard my story, I experienced it as a child uh, from my mother, um, watching my mother experience this, but it's a really important topic. And October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month across the country. And we have some really special guests with us today. So we have Melissa. Melissa joined the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition as prevention coordinator in June of this year. She actually comes from Eastern Kansas, and she had earned her degree in Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies from the University of Kansas. Um, and also with us is Erin Jemison. Erin is an independent consultant focusing on supporting nonprofit, government, and community organizations through policy analysis and development. Erin um, brings over 20 years of experience as a collaborative leader, practitioner, and policy analyst in domestic and sexual violence issues. So these women know what they're doing. And they, I was so impressed by both of them. And then we also have a special guest. Agree. So Melissa and Aaron, what they bring to this episode is a conversation regarding what is domestic violence. And so you and I both yeah. have learned a little bit more about what is qualified as domestic violence. So they go into a lot more detail, which I think is super helpful for some of us that may think that domestic violence is just a physical harm. Yeah, absolutely. I learned a couple of things and we also dive in. So this is a two part series. So we also dive into teen domestic violence and maybe you might be surprised with what's going on. So our honorary guest, uh, we want to call her is Natalie and Natalie comes in this episode and talks about the years that she went through with her ex-husband today. Um, with physical abuse that started in their early years when they started dating and getting married and having children and what that looked like for her over the course of, I want to say, about 10 plus years. Um, she shares her story of not knowing and understanding what domestic violence was to being so involved with it in terms of the trauma and her ex-husband going to prison for what he did to her and her family. So she's very brave and courageous to come and share this. She's outside of that, I think a few years. How many years has she been outside of it? Well, I believe he's been in prison for about 10 years. Yeah, so that piece also is so amazing because we learn how much she still lives with so much of that trauma. So we know that this is an amazing episode. You're going to learn a lot. And we just want to thank you for listening and enjoy today's episode. Hi, I'm Deanna Robbins. And I'm Christy North. Welcome to Pieces of a Woman podcast, where we explore all the pieces that make up a woman, mind, body, and soul. We are two everyday women who have survived, thrived, been defeated, humbled, and spent our lives committed to embracing all complexities of being a woman. This podcast is dedicated to all women, all women searching for real conversations. We are going to be exploring everything from sexuality, aging, menopause, physical and mental health, spirituality, marriage, divorce, and blended families. Everything is on the table, except politics. 
Every episode will be committed to engaging conversations that will include interviews with influential women, leaders, healers, authors, and good friends. Thank you for taking this journey with us. Okay, well, today is a really important episode because we are talking about domestic violence. And I think it's so important because October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and we have some really special guests with us today. And so I want to briefly introduce them again. We've got Erin Jemison. Um, did I pronounce your name right, Erin? We did. We did. <laughs> we have Melissa. And Melissa, how do you pronounce your last name? It's a little tricky with a silent letter in there. My name is Melissa Henshin. Oh, thank you so much, because I was going to ask you that. And then Natalie Linville, thank you for being here with us today. Um, and I'm just going to kind of dive in because we're so fortunate that Natalie is actually a survivor of domestic violence, um, unfortunately, but we're so grateful that you're a survivor and you're here to share your story with us. But um, it's such an important topic because I don't know if it's talked about enough. And I did, we've done, Christy and I have done a lot of research and maybe people don't recognize what, what violence is, what the domestic violence is, even in the first place. But I want to just ramble off a couple of statistics. So Erin, tell me if I'm wrong. So this is what I'm seeing okay. from the CDC <laughs> and hearing from different platforms platforms. So we're hearing that one in three Utah women have suffered from domestic violence, which that number is staggering. And that is Utah. And that one in four nationally is the number. So we ranked higher or locally, which is a scary statistic. We know that after 2020 and after the pandemic, we kept hearing that numbers were going up. And there was an episode done um, with Channel 4 that talked about that the increase in 2020 was up 25 to 50% from 2019. Are those correct numbers? Yeah, unfortunately, those are correct numbers. I mean, the only kind of caveat that I would give is that nationally, it does kind of fluctuate between one and three and one and four. And, and what I always say is that the, the real story behind domestic violence is that we can't really know the prevalence. We know that this is a crime and a um, situation that so many people find themselves in that, that, you know, really lives in secret. It lives behind closed doors. And, um, whenever, when I'm working up with the legislature or with policymakers nationally, and, and they want to really, um, spend a lot of time and energy talking about the numbers, I try to just circle back and say to them, we know that it's, that it's common. We know that it's happening among far more of our friends, family, neighbors, loved ones than we would ever realize. And let's focus our energy on, on um, how, how do we change that? How do we prevent it? How do we help folks who need help? Because um, no matter which exact number you use, it, the, it's huge. And I think that the pandemic has just shown a light on that. And, and I was got to be part of some national research that showed about an 8% increase nationally. But even that, we aren't sure about that. I mean, it's really difficult to take the numbers just from what's reported. Um, but yes, I recently heard the 50% increase that law enforcement agencies are seeing. We know that the pandemic was a perfect storm of all of the risk factors of domestic violence. So it's um, we were expecting it to go up, whatever that exact number has been. And and we need to we need to be working on this issue, pandemic or no pandemic, but COVID definitely um, really highlighted some of the the scarier risks that we've seen. 
So Aaron, both you and Melissa are with the um, Utah Domestic Violence Coalition. Can you share with us exactly what you do? Sure. So the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition is Utah's uh, federally recognized state coalition that really um, consists of all of the different uh, domestic violence service providers in the state. So um, there are 14, 15 domestic violence service providers in the state. There's a new one kind of coming on board right now. Um, that's a pretty low number. Utah, those service providers have to have to cover a huge area, but they're the folks who are 24 seven um, available to survivors who are looking for everything from just someone to talk to, to kind of get through whatever the, the current issue is to legal aid or protective orders, help through the court system to um, emergency shelter or even longer term housing transition if they're ready to leave that relationship. They're the folks who are providing that 24 seven confidential information and, and support and resources. And the coalition that Melissa and I work at is really the kind of training technical assistance. We try to support those folks. We support the supporters. Um, and then UDBC also hosts the 24-7 um, statewide hotline, which really is that link. It's literally the word link, the link line, <laughs> um, to help folks if they call that one number, since it's easier to just remember one number, then we can make sure they get to whatever the closest resources in their community. Okay, so all your funding is federal funding, is that correct? Or do you have any private funding? Yeah, it's um, federal. There's a little bit of state funding in there. And then, yeah, private fundraising. So when I say federally designated coalition, every state has a domestic violence coalition, a sexual assault coalition, or a combined for the two issues coalition. In Utah, we have two separate groups, although we work really closely together. So, um, so we're the organization that's considered the training and technical assistance provider for um, hotlines and other advocates across each state. But yeah, we have a variety of funding resources, including the federal government funding. Okay, that's very helpful. Uh, and also another question, how did you guys navigate through the pandemic? How was that different for you all? That's a really good question. I think I'm actually pretty new to this role, but I came from the YWCA, which is one of those local um, providers. And in terms of UDBC, the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition specifically, um, other than folks needing to work from home and having to transition a lot of the training, including our annual conference, which is later this week, to virtual or a hybrid virtual or in-person, I think it was probably easiest for us compared to the folks who run those shelters. So I know at the YWCA, I was um, one of the people right at the beginning of the pandemic who was who stayed on campus. I was there every day because other folks on our leadership team had children who weren't in school or um, had health concerns or were of an age that they were higher risk. So I was one of a handful of people that were on campus every day because we had 200 women and children who lived in our building, who lived in our shelters. And it was really challenging and it has continued to be really challenging, I know, for all of those 24 seven shelters, I mean, if they're congregate living settings and those are some of the highest risk settings for COVID-19 transmission as we know. And so trying to put in all of those different precautions, try to keep people as safe as, as we could, helping kiddos still be able to get the education and, and support that they need while also keeping moms safe. It's, it's I think some of the most challenging aside from healthcare providers work that there that has kind of needed to continue through the past 18 plus months. Wow, I can only imagine. Go ahead, Christy. I was going to ask if 
one of you, uh, Melissa or Aaron, give us a little bit more of a definition and what domestic violence, how, how we should be looking at that and what it means. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. But Melissa, I don't need, <laughs> I'm not trying to take all the airtime. So jump in if you want. But I mean, I tend to define domestic violence and kind of explain it to people as anytime there is one partner in a relationship is controlling the other partner and that other partner isn't able to act freely. They're scared of that person um, in any, in any way. I think we tend to stereotypically think of it as physical violence. And I actually think while physical violence may happen in a relationship, and I wouldn't call that healthy or a good relationship, I think we need to be really careful that it's, it's more about is one person fearful of the other? Is there a controlling dynamic? Is there one person who has more power than the other in a way that the, that, that person is not able to live the way that they choose on a day-to-day basis? I think that's the better definition because they're, may be physical altercations between two people that go in both directions. Um, And again, not necessarily healthy. I wouldn't necessarily say let's all shoot for a relationship like that. But I think domestic violence really comes into play when there's that power, that control, that fear of one person from another. And that can very much um, be wielded, I guess, without physical violence. I think that's one of the hardest things for so many survivors is recognizing even if someone that never lays a hand on you, if you are being controlled and manipulated emotionally and verbally, that is just as harmful. And I've heard many survivors talk about that being the hardest part actually to get over because it's so much more insidious and complex. And, and there's a lot of complicated emotions going on there where, a bruise might heal, and I'm not trying to minimize the physical violence either, but that emotional manipulation and control that you can really have when you're in an intimate relationship with someone that's not healthy is, is just so difficult to get over and get out of. So Melissa, what would you say to that with your experience? Yeah, I think, Erin, uh, you did a great job explaining it, but some of the thoughts that were going through my mind is, first of all, you said power and control. I think those are are the two big words for anyone working in the domestic violence field to really understand the dynamics of that type of abusive relationship. You know, someone, as you said, who who holds power over another, whether you know that other person has given that to them or not, and oftentimes it's not. But because of the nature of a relationship, um, and oftentimes that fear that does keep someone, uh, quote unquote, in line, that creates a dynamic in which someone loses their own autonomy. And I would also like to point out cruelty. Cruelty is a word that I like to use because I think it really encompasses so much of the dynamics of abusive behavior. Um, it includes you know, things that might come to your mind like physical abuse, which as Aaron said, is not in every or even significant portion without statistics behind me of um, domestic violence relationships, but is often used to get someone to still do what the abusive perpetrator wants. If I am afraid of getting hurt, even though I never have been, or I got really hurt one time and I know that this person is capable of it and I don't want it to happen again, then I might be more willing to do what they say without fighting or asking questions because I've learned that that fear is always around the edges of things and is going to, could very well happen again to keep me aligned. And so that cruelty piece though, 
can, I like that word because it encompasses so many things. It encompasses something as, as violent or a violation of someone as physical or sexual abuse, but it also encompasses the things that other people may not see as abuse, like um, giving someone the silent treatment or calling them names or dismissing their, their very valid feelings and emotions. And those are all cruel behaviors that um, make up the, the entirety of the dynamics of the different behaviors that someone might use in an abusive relationship. And that really can vary from person to person, from relationship to relationship as well. Someone might be more controlling and manipulative. Someone might use the children against, um, you know, to get their, their victim, their uh, partner or spouse to do what they want them to do. Someone might be using threats, um, denial, minimization um, of their partner to, or gaslighting them, you know, making them think that they, they don't know what's going on, or maybe they, that thing didn't happen that they thought happened. Um, it might be outright threats or use of violence. It could be using privilege in a relationship, whether that's male privilege, if it's a male-female relationship, or whether it's privilege because I'm able-bodied and you do not have the same able body and abilities. It could be any of those type of things. And all of those things, if you think about what a healthy relationship is, the, um, the equality that we're looking for, the shared power, shared responsibilities, those type of things that I just mentioned, those aren't acceptable in any relationship and they can happen in any relationship, but it's the pattern of behaviors, it's the escalation of behaviors, um, it's the intention that really can change something from, from an unhealthy situation to an abusive situation. You know, we tend to think verbal and physical abuse is the mm -hmm. top two, but in doing the research, um, a couple of words came up that I had never seen before and makes perfect sense, but it was deprivation or neglect. And those are part of um, abuse too. And I never really thought about that. So anyway, I appreciate you saying that and diving into it. Sorry, Christy, go ahead. No, I think, you know, just listening and hearing what, how you um, defined the different areas where I think a lot of us, as Deanna said, just automatically go to the physical and that's domestic violence and all of those other areas that you listed, we don't look at necessarily the silent treatment or when we engage in the name calling, we don't identify that as abuse and there's so many other areas. So I appreciate you bringing that to the front and center of this because we really want to be empowering all of our listeners to recognize and honor who they are and not let that be compromised because they think that that's typical stuff in a relationship. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I would uh, um, add one more thing, which is uh, it actually made me think of it when I was listening to your interview, Deanna, when you were talking about your own childhood and how there was something that you were, you were presented on paper and you said, oh my gosh, that's my experience. And I, it made me think of, you know, I've heard that from so many people in domestic violence situations when um, I would encourage your audience members to look up the power and control wheel. If that's not something that you've heard of or seen before, you can just search it online and a whole bunch of them come up. Um, and that is a, a staple tool for domestic violence service providers because it is such a great way to view how that relationship can look and the dynamics and for many survivors, and I've heard this say this before, oh my gosh, that's my experience on paper. Someone thought to put that on paper and other people, other people have this too. And that can be a very powerful thing is to be able to say, oh my gosh, I am not alone in this. In fact, it's so prevalent that they've created this tool to help people understand it better. So I would encourage everyone, if you haven't seen it, to look up the power and control wheel. 
we'll make sure we include that link in our show notes. So thank you for bringing that. With all of that said, thank you both so much for sharing that. And we really want to now bring in Natalie. And we, again, like I said, I'm just so grateful you're here and your bravery to share your story. And this I do know you never know how many lives you're going to touch by sharing your story. I 100% know that. And it's amazing how much your story could, the people that you will save and touch. So I just appreciate you being here, but we're so grateful that you're going to share it because we, we do want our audience to hear it and you start wherever you want to start. And then we'll interject and ask questions if that's okay. But Natalie, tell us your story. Okay. It's long, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try to condense it, but I'll tell you now, like my voice is shaky, my hands are sweaty. I was up at 5 a.m. crying to my husband because I just had like I think buried a lot of this <laughs> until I was asked to talk about it. And then so I'm like lacking sleep. I had really bad anxiety all night. And anyone that's gone through domestic violence or any trauma knows what a trigger is like and what it feels like. You have like physical responses and so I'm going to try to focus and, you know, talk through it clearly and yeah, stop if you have any questions or anything like that, but, um, oh, you're great. You just take your time. Okay. Um, I guess to start off my, my ex has been in prison since 2009 for aggravated attempted murder and domestic violence and violence in the presence of our children. And he shot a police officer and all that. That was like the final thing that sent him away. But leading up to that, I grew up with a normal, like healthy childhood. My parents just had their, I think, 45th wedding anniversary. I was like really sheltered. I had a good upbringing. I honestly had never thought twice about domestic violence. It was just never a term I had to think about or wondered about or anything. Like probably most people, unless you've experienced it or anything, you just don't know much about it. Um, but I met my ex in high school. We spent every minute together. We loved each other. Everything was fun. Everything was great. And then we found out we were having our son. I was almost 17 when I had him. That's when I realized that there were some things in his family going on that I hadn't noticed before, heard about before. The first thing that came to my attention was his sister had made a comment, but we told him he better not ever hate you. And I was like, that's weird. You know, like, why would anyone ever say that? And then I started finding out that there was abuse in his family. His parents were apart at that time. His mom was living in a hotel, this and that. So it just kind of came about. I started learning about it and I was already pregnant and our relationship dynamic just changed right then, you know, like, he didn't want me seeing a male doctor. He wanted to be making these decisions about his baby. It was his baby, not our baby. And it's just very drastic changes. But I was young. I guess you could call that teen dating violence. I didn't understand that this was wrong. I would stick up for him. I'd lie to my family. I would do whatever I needed to to make my relationship work. So Natalie, can I ask really quick? So did he, it started out with him being a little bit controlling and then you were yeah. learning stuff from his family. Um, do you know if he was abused growing up or was it just something with his parents? There were some things there. I don't know that I want to speak about, okay. but yes, with him, 
and other extended family members, but there was domestic violence in his home between his parents that they kept very secretive. People didn't know about it, I guess, unless you're in the family, you didn't know about what was going on or if you were law enforcement that had dealt with it. And even, you know, law enforcement would be like, well, I knew there used to be abuse, but, you know, he doesn't abuse her anymore or anything, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it was just like, well, that's in the past. He's not, he doesn't do it anymore, does he? And things like that. So it was just something very foreign to me that, I don't know, I, I made a lot of excuses for, and I felt sorry for him and I wanted to baby him. And there was a lot of phone calls where he would be like crying and things going on in his home. And I thought I could fix it and be there for him. And I mean, it was just stuff that was way beyond my ability to help. Um, But, you know, you don't know that when you're in it. At that point, as you're kind of navigating some of those troubled waters with him, had you experienced anything physical at this point as they're stating that? So my first experience with physical violence was I, I had a neighbor invite me over for dinner. I didn't have any friends anymore at that point because, you know, I had been made to feel like you don't need that person. You don't need that person. We only need our, each other. So I had pushed everyone away from me. And so when this neighbor invited me over for dinner, our baby was probably a year old. I went over and was gone 45 minutes and came home and I was locked out of my house. And so I went and knocked on a window and he let me in and shoved me down and skinned my elbows and told me I had to sleep on the couch instead of with my son who I slept with every night. And he told me that was my punishment. And I called my dad. I was still young. You know, I was almost 18. And my dad was like, you don't get to punish her, you know? And so that kind of just like was the beginning of it escalating. And I actually left soon after that for a year and a half. He, in the meantime, became an EMT and had told me he had plans to go to nursing school. And I had, you know, dated someone else for that period of a year. And he dated other people as well. But during that time, his family harassed me. I got dozens of phone calls every night from restricted phone numbers. He would put human feces on my boyfriend's truck. Um, just constant harassment. And he actually attacked my boyfriend one night and bit him. He, my ex had blood like running down his face from biting him. And I had called the police. The police came. They knew him, my ex, and and they arrested him. His mother bailed him out an hour later. And the cop had said, he's a good kid just going through a hard time. And, and so I placed the blame on myself. Like I caused this. I left him and my boyfriend's mother had actually made a comment, you know, he's just trying to keep his family together. That's why he is, he's defending his family. And so I was just like, this is my fault. We were sharing our son too and sharing your child every other weekend. A lot of people go through divorces. It's hard. And so I'm taking all these comments people are telling me into account. I'm like, oh, he's, he's going to attend nursing school. He's an EMT now. Like he's turning his life around. So we got back together after a year and a half and he didn't even attend one nursing class. It was like a week back into the relationship together. And I knew I was in trouble. And then we found out we were having our daughter. And so we have the two kids together. But when she was three months old, he came after me and choked me and beat me up fist over fist. And, 
in front of my kids and my little boy was four years old kicking him off of me and I was I was able to get some kitchen knives and like told him please let me just leave the house I couldn't get to my phone just let me take the kids and leave and he's like you know please don't call the police I don't want to go to jail please don't call the police and I'm like I'm not going to call the police just let me go with the kids let me leave and I actually drove to the police station the police went to find him and he he was leaving my house our house and he kind of like waved them on so they went hit on a high speed chase and he outran them in the fog and made it to a family member's house in Salt Lake and when the police found out he was there our local police let his mother go out and pick him up and bring him back to jail where he got booked and released I mean that's the scary part and why I mean I'm so proud of you for going to the police but often people don't go anywhere or report it because they're terrified and i just i can only imagine what you were going through and your two little kids what happened when he was released did you encounter again or did you stay away how did you protect yourself while he was on the run before they found him i had that police officer that went after him he came inside in front of my house and i moved out what i could me and my family and some some other people moved the belongings that we could. And then um, I lived with my parents until I got an apartment. But I just, I know I had a protective order filled out and I remember like being afraid for my children's safety. I mean, this was like 13 years ago. So, I mean, yeah, it was scary. And I know I had that filled out in a protective order, but the judge just granted um, supervised visitation with my children and they were um, four four months old at that time, four years and four months. And, you know, I had an attorney and they just pushed so hard for child support. We're going to go after child support. We're going to go after child support. And I just kept saying, I don't care about that. I just need my kids away from him. Like, I'm afraid he's going to hurt them. And so you have the justice system, like pushing child support. That's all we can go after. Da, 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 da. You know, and I'm like... <laughs> Anyway, it was just like going into the twilight zone because you grow up thinking that these people are going to keep you safe and protect you. And it's just wall after wall and fail after fail. And so anyway, he ended up, the DA ended up sending, sentencing him to six days after that incident. Six days in jail? He got six days for that. I would imagine, and you know, Melissa and Aaron can probably speak to this um, in more depth, but going through that... And just hearing where you probably lost faith in the protection. And I want to be sensitive to where I, you know, I'm not putting blame necessarily. It's the system I'm sure that, that creates this unfortunate space for people that are in that and you're relying on it. And there's really a protective order as we have learned, unfortunately, does not necessarily mean safety. What are your thoughts on that? Well, either one of you, Melissa or Aaron, can speak to that. As part of my, um, before I worked at the coalition and, and I was a domestic violence advocate for six years in a rural Kansas community, um, I did work with survivors who often were involved with the court system um, and often with civil protective orders. And it is a conversation that needs to be had with the person who is wanting to fill out the protective order because for some people they can be effective if the abusive perpetrator is a someone who wants to 
keep their reputation in the community if they're concerned about that. They are a, a law follower, you know, maybe not in the home, but when people are watching, they follow the rules, um, then that could be a really good option. But for some people, it can actually make their situation more dangerous. If the abusive perpetrator is someone who doesn't care about the rules or the law or getting caught, um, if that protective order is something that signals to them that this is truly the end of the relationship, um, I'm really losing this person and I can't imagine that happening because my survival is tied up in this relationship. Then someone with that type of or a similar type of mentality, um, it can actually be quite dangerous. And either way, a protective order is just a piece of paper. It needs to be enforced. And for people who live you know, far enough away that they know that if they call the cops, it's still going to be 30 minutes before they get there. So I've got 30 minutes before I need to worry about anything. Um, or for people who just know that this is, you know, not something that is going to have teeth. I mean, this is a real conversation. For some people, it provides safety. For some people, it doesn't. And not everybody knows. So um, it's, it is a, an excellent tool. I'm glad we have it, but it is not as simple as just saying, look, I'm protected because the judge granted me this order. Right. I know it's so, so true. I mean, I know, and I know things have changed a lot since I was younger, but I know my mom many times when the cops would show up and one time she was hospitalized and they would ask her if she wanted to press charges and she would say no you know, obviously I was a child. I didn't understand at that time, but I think she was more afraid of what would happen the aftermath of what would happen. It's terrifying. And so how do you tell somebody, what do they do? And Natalie, I would love your, your input on this. If you're in that situation, did you go to your parents? How did you, was this all self, you did it all by yourself or did you reach out to anybody? Did, did you finally let people in of, to what was really going on? I, I had probably four restraining orders, three protective orders. Protective orders hold a little bit more weight than a restraining order. But I mean, every time they were violated and there was never any charges regarding any violations of those. So for me, I was always like, it's a piece of paper. And I had, I've had people tell me since like, oh, they took my protective order seriously after what happened to you. So I'm like, well, at least... At least it helps somebody, but yeah, it's, it's hard to say this is going to protect me. But you were still strong enough to do it. I mean, I guess that's yeah. what I'm asking is you still have the strength to go, I'm going to do this. What, what is in you that made you decide to go that route? I had never dealt with law enforcement in my life. And so that's what I was directed to do when I started dealing with like stalking and violence. We, I don't remember if we talked to my attorney and that's what he suggested or the police were called. The police were called so many times. That's probably where they directed me. But then, you know, as time went on and things just kept happening, I just, I lost faith in the system and I just felt like, I was in the twilight zone because I had such faith in the system growing up and then to actually deal with it, I was mind blown. And it kind of comes later too with the final incident that put him away and leading up to all that. But his, his family is pretty well established in the community. They are business owners and his mother owns a restaurant and feeds the police for free. And so the police all knew them. And so it was like the scariest thing of my life, like 
just every time it was brought up, they'd tell me, you know, what good people they are. And, oh, well, they used to have domestic violence in their family, but not anymore. Um, Things like that. And so it was just. So I would imagine, you know, having that constantly coming back at you. um, Not only were you not getting the support with the system, but the community was letting you down as well. And you were second, probably, I don't, I don't want to prescribe this to you, but second guessing maybe how you were going to be able to get through it. I got to the point and I said a lot, like I would, I got my concealed carry permit because I was like, I will protect myself before I call the police ever again. And this was after he went to prison. But, you know, you think when someone goes to prison, that's the end of it. And and my story, I'm safe and it's over and I can move on. And it's just the very beginning of a totally different battle. And and I've I spoke with Aaron and Melissa and I said, you know, I I went through the trauma and the abuse and the shooting, but going through the court system and attending parole hearings and relying on law enforcement and was a totally different trauma and a different level of on its own that was almost more traumatic than the abuse. Well, I want to ask you about that because that I don't want to discourage anybody from taking action, but at the same time, what what do they do? I saw in your notes that he wasn't supposed to be up for parole till what 2029, but now it's 2025. Is that correct? He will be released October of 2024. Oh, okay. And so we weren't together for two years. And I always like had the gut feeling just through like stalking and things that took place over those two years. I just, I knew that wasn't it. And my kids had supervised visitation and things like that. I always went through his mother to do supervised visitation. But Halloween of 2009, his sister had texted me and said, can we take the kids to training? And I've never heard from her before about visitation or ever since probably we were together. And it struck me weird. I just was like, I would want to be part of my children's lives. I haven't had an issue with him for a little bit. Maybe he's going to be okay. So I let them, my kids go, dropped them off with his mother. And his mother was like, oh, I didn't know that he was taking them trick-or-treating. And I was like, that's weird. Anyway, a couple hours later, I met her back at her restaurant, picked my kids up and we went home. And I was like, you guys can stay up and look through your candy we'll go to bed in a minute. And I just had a feeling, no, let's go to bed now. Let's, let's get cleaned up and go to bed now. And as soon as I got to the top of my stairs, I heard, I thought glass, like light bulbs were breaking, but I had never heard a gunshot. And so I heard it was eight gunshots. I didn't know at the time, but there was eight gunshots in my house. And before that, someone had seen him looking through our windows and called the police, our neighbors. So, I mean, this is all God. I, this is where I strong, my strong faith comes from because it was second by second. The police were there before I knew they were there. And they had asked him, you know, are you supposed to be here? And he's shot at the officer and shot him through the legs. So he shot five times at the officer and then eight times blindly in our home. And it was, well, let me back up my, I ran to our bedroom. My son put his little sister under the bed. He he was six and she was two. And he said, be quiet. Don't make any noise. Mommy's going to get help. And he never cried. He just did what he needed to. And 
I could see lights outside. I was on the phone with 911 and I saw the lights, but I couldn't hear anyone coming in my house. So I ran outside. I grabbed some knives again out of the kitchen on my way out. And I was running toward the police cars and they were yelling at me, you know, Natalie, get down, get behind the car, get, you know, like, and I was just screaming to please save my babies, get my babies. And it's all on dash cam. It was recorded on one of the officer's cameras. And I was pulling, I can still feel his badge. I was just like, please go get my babies, get my babies. I didn't know what was happening in my house and none of them would move. Like I had, my house was surrounded and they all had the guns drawn and I, the police officers were shaking and I was like, they're scared. I like, no one's going to get them. So I ran back in, got my kids. And, you know, on the way out, I looked in my basement window. My ex had jumped in the window. Oh, wow. I was engaged at the time and we were living together. He was attacking my fiance and I was screaming at the police, you know, he's dropped the gun, go get him. He's dropped the gun, go arrest him. And they went and got him. And I put my kids in a police car and my ex was laughing hysterically the entire time, like an evil clown laugh. And he was just saying like, I'm Satan, I'm Satan, you know, like just laughing hysterically the whole time. But the police were like, it's over, Natalie. It's finally over. And I, I was so mad. I said some very not kind words. But yeah, it took us almost losing our lives to put, you know, quit dealing with him. But it, I was so mad because I was like, I've been trying to tell you. I've been trying to tell you. Like, I was scared. I knew something like this was going to happen. And so, yeah, you go through. And you also have... Um, what's interesting is you've got these, the two that I'm aware of gaps of where you were not together and he continued to surface. And that part I think is interesting because I don't know if that, how common that is that it, that you have, I mean, you had a year and a half gap then you had, I don't know what this last one was. Um, and so now I can see where your fear is with this date coming up because you don't know where his mindset's going to be. And if that's something you have to still be concerned about, I am so sorry that that is what your reality is, I'm sure. Yeah, I just had to make a choice that I'm not going to let that control my life. And it did for a good 10 years. I was terrified and couldn't, after sentencing and everything, it doesn't stop. Like his family is still doing things and you know, I don't know if you want to get into all that, but it just, it didn't stop for a good 10 years and you deal with the aftermath and his mom fought for a visitation and my kids went through an evaluation and that was a nightmare and watching them suffer and just navigating all of that is a whole other mountain in itself. You'd never in a million years think about unless you had to deal with it. And so, well, and you're having, um, I mean, navigating the family dynamic and all of those after effects, but you're also, like you said, when he went, when he goes into jail, it's not over for you. I mean, you're, you're still struggling through the fear, I would imagine, and the trauma of it for years. I don't know that it just, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of work that needs to be done internally, but um, I'm guessing that that stays with you for some time. Yeah, I think people expect you to just get over it as time goes on, but you just learn to carry it differently in different seasons of your life. And like I have a trigger and my 
poor husband knows I'm going to be bawling and he's going to have to just listen to me. And he's really good about just letting me vent and stuff. But it's just, yeah, you just, it never goes away ever. And I don't, that's what people don't understand. Yeah. Like I can't, I haven't driven past the house where the shooting was in 12 years now. I haven't driven down that road. I didn't drive past his mother's restaurant for 10 years because I couldn't, I literally mentally could not handle. And I knew if I drove by, there was going to be police cars there getting their lunch from her for free. And I mentally could not handle knowing like my support was supporting the offender's family. It just was like, it was too much to even process for a long time. That is like a bad movie. Like you, it's such a bad, it's a nightmare that you're having to deal with that. I'm sure there's a lot of police officers that don't know newer now, younger officers that are going there now and are not aware of the story. Maybe I don't know, but that's so traumatic. How are your kids doing? Um, they're really good. I mean, they've had their times. My son definitely struggled through middle school. We found out their dad is engaged to his corrections officer from the prison. And so that was another slap in the face with someone we thought was going to be protecting us. We didn't feel safe with him in prison. And she moved to our hometown and rolled her kids in school with my kids. And it was just this whole other nightmare. But I mean, through all that, and they've had to go through counseling and things like that, trauma therapy, the counselors are like, they're just, they're doing amazing for what they've been through. My son's getting ready to graduate this year. He's been on honor roll all through high school. He's the sweetest kid I hear all the time. And, you know, but no one gets to see the struggles they've had because they just hold it together really well. They've, well, they've done Congratulations. That's a, a testament to you and what you've done because things could have went a whole different way. And I mean, it's been, it takes an army to raise kids. It's been church family, people that have my friends, you know, helping and my parents helping and just so many different people pouring into their lives. But they even tell me about other kids that are struggling. You know, I feel so bad for so-and-so and I just tell them, you know, that's, that's really sweet that you can point that out in someone else because look what you've gone through. And they don't ever say like, me, me, me. They don't ever, right. They never want that focus on them. So I give it all to God because (laughs) raising kids is not an easy task. (laughs) No, that is a, for sure. Well, Natalie, I have to say we, um, we were talking before we started recording it, we were referencing January that we had on, um, and something she said to us really stuck with me. And that is, and I think your kids have this, instead of looking at other people and judging them and like, what's wrong with you, it's stopping and asking the question of what's happened to you. And there's always a story behind that. And so that's, that's so powerful that your kids are doing that already. They've been taught from a young age. And I do believe in breaking the cycle because my ex is a testament uh, the cycle not being broken and he that was normalized in his home it was downplayed in his home it's still downplayed they his family makes me feel like I'm crazy for sticking up the way I do because you know they just think he their son is God even though he's in prison a lot of people tell me we didn't even know he was still in there the way his family talks about him you know but my kids know I pray to God they know right from wrong and integrity and they behave ethically. And I don't know, 
Natalie, you made, I kept writing notes as you were talking and then you would eventually make the point that I wrote the note for. So, <laughs> so I just really want to thank you for sharing your story and also appreciate um, the incredible insight that you have from it, because that's not, not everyone gets to that point. And I, um, and it's a real testament as everyone has said to, to who you are as a person. And also I imagine to the support systems that you've had that, um, you're at the point where you are. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you think someone could benefit, please share. If there's a conversation you think we should be having or a topic that resonated with you, please let us know. You can engage and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Pieces of a Woman Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. If you listen to us on Apple, leave us a five-star rating and a comment.